perhaps there are no more important subjects to talk about than ecology, right? Because it's going forward, it's one of those topics that we might um, hear a lot about in the coming several years, maybe. <laughs> um, so anyway, I'm Katie Fallon. I've met many of you. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I talk with my hands a lot, so sorry if that's distracting. <laughs> it's the Katie Fallon Show. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I write primarily about nature that's nonfiction about nature um, or ecology. I, I occasionally try to write poetry, like I mentioned at the welcome dinner, but it just ends up being nonfiction with line breaks. And then I just take out the line breaks, and then they're essays. So anyway. <laughs> Um, I've, I've written fiction in the past, but not for a really long time because that was actually nonfiction I was writing also. And I just changed my name from Katie to Delia. <laughs> so anyway, I've only written nonfiction for quite a while. So a lot of what I'm talking about is kind of geared toward nonfiction, but really you can put ecological elements in any kind of writing that you do. And a lot of the things that make writing about ecology important, or writing about the subject important in nonfiction are important, the same things are important in poetry and fiction as well. So we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Anybody know just what kind of flower or butterfly that is? Bee balm. Bee balm or bergamot, bergamot, right? That same family? Yep. Anyone know what kind of butterfly that is? Is it? Or is it, is it a? Is it a pipe vine swallowtail or a spice bush swallowtail? It's a purple and black butterfly. <laughs> 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 and it's a, I always have trouble with the, I, I, I think it's a spice bush swallowtail. But it's the same, it's that, in that tiger swallowtail, that family. But anyway, learning the names of things is really important. <laughs> and I'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. And um, I took all these, all the pictures that you're going to see in here are from, um, I think all the pictures in here, are from not very far away in the Ferno Experimental Forest, which is um, Parsons. That's kind of in this neighborhood, right? And um, Doug's, Doug's uh, wife works there, actually. But uh, you can go visit the Ferno Experimental Forest whenever you want. It's um, part of the Monongahela National Forest. When I first heard uh, Experimental Forest, I was like, Ooh, like, what goes on in there, you know? Um, but, but really, it's where they do, they do long-term forestry experiments. It's not really, I didn't know, I, you know, I was looking for something a little crazier, but they do long-term uh, forestry experiments there. Anyway, um, that's where all these pictures are from. So ecology is, uh-oh, what's going on here? Change. Oh, my gosh. Here we go. Can I just do that? Yeah. So... Ecology is one of those words that gets used a lot that no one really knows what it means. Um, usually, you know, we say something is eco and we think of like environmentally friendly or green or something along those lines. Um, I, I gave you a little short definition, I think, in the description of the seminar, but um, the long, the, dis, the definition I like best is from the Ecological Society of America. Um, which is a pretty big organization. They have conferences. Um, does anybody want to read that for me? Since sure, ecology is the study of the relationships between living organisms, including humans, and their physical environment. It seeks to understand the vital connections between plants and animals and the world around them. 
Ecology also provides information about the benefits of ecosystems and how we can use Earth's resources <coughs> in ways that leave the environment healthy for future generations. Great. Thank you. So that's kind of a, that sounds pretty big, right? I mean, it sounds almost um, the way anything interacts with its environment, right? It can be, you know, ecology is the study of that, right? The connections between plants, animals, you know, fungus, <laughs> um, and the world around them. And then it also provides information about you know, the benefits of ecosystems and how we can use the Earth's resources in ways that are, you know, good and not um, too damaging for future generations. So, uh, yeah, so that's the defin my favorite definition. Um, it's not just environmentally friendly stuff. It's the way that organisms interact with their environments. So writing about ecology, there, uh, how do you write about something like that? I mean, it sounds like a big, huge thing to write about. I'm going to write about how animals interact with their environment, all of them. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's huge. And it can be, you know, kind of intimidating, but there are lots of different kinds of writing, I think, that fall under writing about ecology, or it could be. I mean, nature writing is obviously a, a big one. Um, what is nature writing? Does anybody have a good nature writing definition? How would you define that thing? writing about um, specific natural spots like marshes or a park or a meadow or trees or that focuses on some um, entity in the, in the, in the manufactured human world. Okay, well, you, and you, there is some urban nature writing, just to kind of, kind of take, but, 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 well, you could even, there's even, you could even stretch the definition and you could call it, you could call nature I mean, there's nature even, there, uh, Rebecca Solnit has a line that I love that you're never more than two feet from a spider, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I know, everyone's like, oh. <laughs> They're all over me. <laughs> yeah, so nature permeates everything. And sometimes when I talk about writing about ecology or nature writing, I'm like, I'm just talking about everything. Because um, nature is everywhere and we are it too, right? We're wild animals, aren't we? More or less, right? We're not. We've not been domesticated, and anyway, um, <laughs> um, travel, travel writing, and a lot of these things kind of bleed into each other. Uh, travel writing is also can, can also be ecological writing, um, and uh, travel writing is another one of those things. You know, someone going somewhere, you could almost call travel writing, right? Was it Hemingway who said there are only two stories, two kinds of stories? I think it was Hemingway. Someone went on a journey and a stranger came to town, <laughs> right? Um, so uh, travel writing is often, you know, someone goes somewhere and experiences something different, right? And that could be, you know, you traveling from here to Morgantown, um, where the strange man wants to kill his girlfriend, you know, which is totally Morgantown, like that's, you know, and, um, you know, or it could be traveling to Thailand you know, or India or somewhere totally different and writing about it. And uh, if you get it, if you're, if you start reading travel writing, I mean, there is a lot of really great travel writing where people will, you know, give themselves, get money somehow and give themselves quests. Um, and, you know, ride a train from, you know, somewhere to somewhere else and write about it, right? Uh, or whatever. There's also, um, if you like travel writing and nature writing, I would encourage you to pick up the um, best American travel writing or best American science and nature writing, and they come out every year. 
uh, with just the contemporary, you know, best of, according to that editor. And there's Best American Essays also. And sometimes what's really cool is when the same piece will end up in more than one of them. And then you're like, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> Um, a lot of food writing is, is, uh, can be considered ecological writing, and it sounds funny. To, I don't know, food writing is a funny phrase for some reason. But there's uh, a lot of food writing lately. If any of you have read um, Michael Pollan, um, and, um, you know, The Omnivore's Dilemma, uh, I gave you a little piece in your little packet from um, The Third Plate, uh, Dan Barber, that is probably less literary than a lot of the writing that, that you would normally read, but it's, um, I think it's good to look at for various reasons, and we'll look at that in a minute. But food writing uh, also kind of goes along with travel writing sometimes, and writing about the food of the place and traveling to the place kind of go together. And you might think, how is that ecological? Well, how do you get food? Right? I mean, it's, it's um, something you grow or something you raise or something you hunt or something you gather, right? You're interacting with your environment, you know? So. Uh, and then environmental journalism is kind of probably uh, one end of the spectrum. If, some, if maybe, you know, memoir or some nature writing is one end, maybe environmental journalism might be kind of on the other where uh, maybe the first person narrator is not there or is um, not as important uh, as it is in some of the other kinds of writing. But there's a lot of environmental journalism out there too. There's a society for environmental journalists. Um, if you read uh, if you read, there are a lot of shiny magazines that have environmental journalism in them. Um, can you think of any that you like? Orion. Yes. Orion. Orion is a, a beautiful magazine. If any of you like nature writing and science writing, um, Orion is. There's some good literary stuff in there, as well as some, not that environmental journalism is not literary, but there's some, there's a spectrum, I think, of what's in there. There's some poetry in there sometimes also. Any other examples of... Um, Publications that have good environmental journalism, <coughs> that you can think of. Yeah, they have. There are often like kind of these theme issues that will have, that will have some, some environmental journalism. What about like the sun? The sun, yeah, definitely the sun. Yep, yep, uh, and even even things that are less literary, like uh, Smithsonian, um, or. New York Times, yeah, Mother Earth News, um, someone said. Even uh, there's some sometimes travel, a lot of travel writing in shiny magazines these days is getting into that like a list of the 10 best places to stay in Malaysia or whatever. But there are some shiny publications do have really good kind of essay type articles. Um, there's a magazine called Travel and Leisure, which is an um, Condé Nast traveler. Um, so you can find some good writing in some of these shiny publications, but uh, you find some other stuff too. <laughs> so some memoir, poetry, and fiction can, of course, be ecological writing. And uh, I think that it's important, even if, if you're writing, you know, fiction, everyone is made up, you know, in quotes, made up. And uh, the situation is totally fictional. If you're in this world um, and you're writing about, anything about nature or ecology, you probably, you still need to get those details correct, right? I mean, you probably are not, if you have a character in Buchanan, right, walking down the street, you're probably, if you have the wrong kind of bird in there, someone will know, right? 
um, or the wrong kind of flower or a detail that's not that's not accurate to your place, even if you're writing a fictional story, it's still important to get those ecological details correct. If any of you read things where you're like, that is not what happens there. I mean, if you think about watching, even watching a show, like we were talking about of how Diane likes television, mm -hmm. and if you're watching one of those shows like CSI or Criminal Minds or something, and they're doing an autopsy and they name body parts wrong, you ever heard them do this? Like they say them, and my husband's a veterinarian, so he's like, "Oh, that's not how you say that," you know, or whatever. That's not in there. Why would that be? You know, so like you're getting getting the names of those things wrong is someone again. Someone will know, and it will delegitimize kind of what you're writing. So, do you have any examples of nature writing, travel writing, food writing that you love? Barbara Kingsolver, absolutely. Annie Dillard, yes, Annie Dillard. Yeah, Barbara, and um, they both have quite a, a lot. That's of both. Um, uh, Barbara Kingsolver's got lots of fiction and nonfiction <laughs> that would all count as ecological writing, I think. Question. So, would um, so so in the like fiction aspect of it, it's also like doing part like interactions with like things like uh, you know how certain cultures have faith involves itself within the landscape too. Mm -hmm. So would that be something that's yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Directional, specific Yes. Yeah. You know, how I think I can't remember what it was. Yellow. It was like yellow woman in bodies of spirit or something like that. And she was talking about how the body becomes dust. And that's yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's totally yeah. 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 Definitely. No. That's that's good a good example. Yeah, ecological writing. Any other one favorites? I have a list for you in a second to give you, just in case. Oh, cool. Huh, I have not read that, but that would seems like that counts. Nice. A couple other places. Hmm, that sounds like I would like to read that. Both of you are raising your hand there. Brian Doyle's novels, mm. especially Martin Martin. Mm. I I've not I've no Brian Doyle, but I've not read that particular novel. But it's a yeah Brian Doyle's. Lots of ecology. I think he does a really good job of just integrating like the human and the natural world and the boundaries. Great. So particular political and ecological interest here and vital interest is not enough removal, it's reminding. Yeah. And uh, the book um, Lost Mountain. Yeah, Lost Mountain. Yep, Eric Reese. I think that's a perfect example for Strange as the Weather yep. has been. Yes, yes, and Pancakes, Strange as the Weather has been. If you've read, if you've read. The area has produced some of the best examples. Yes, totally. Yep, those are two great examples. Yeah, and Anne Pancake um, has been here before. And uh, she has that Strange as the Weather has been is a novel, but she has a book of short stories called Given Ground that's really great, too. Um, and she has a new one that I've not read yet. Me and my daddy listen to Bob Marley. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was thinking of James Galvin's Meadow, too, for, mm. for a novel that's a quirky novel. It's very poetic, but follows the meadow through several generations. Oh, that's, I've not read that. That sounds really cool. It's neat. 
Terry Tempest Williams has a book, Refuge. Yes, Refuge. Yeah. Um, yeah, all of Terry Tempest Williams. Yeah. Um, Refuge was uh, the first. If you've not read Refuge, you should read Refuge. It's great. It's um, it's also very like teachable. If you're going to be teaching books ever to anybody, it's a teachable book. Um, it's about the Great Salt Lake um, flooding, a flooding a bird refuge. But it's also about her mother battling cancer. And there are a lot of really, uh, you know, a lot going on in there. I don't want to get too much into it, but you should read it. Yes. Solace of Open Spaces. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right. You guys are good. Okay. Great. Into the Wild by John Krakauer. Yeah, Into the Wild. When he did more research about why the guy died from eating a certain thing. I think so. Yeah, Into the Wild. Have you all read that one? That's probably that. Go, I would say I put that closer to the environmental journalism, which is on, but it's still a uh, still counts, obviously. Yeah, Into the Wild, and they made a movie, yeah, right? And uh, uh, and yeah, I was I was trying I was just trying to come up with that Into Thin Air. Yeah, and um, Under the does he have Under the Banner of Heaven? Okay. Well, you could say, you could say that. This is a big umbrella. <laughs> big umbrella. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. He's got a couple other ones, too. So I'm going to give you a list. So you all probably, it sounds like you all know all of this already, but this is a list that I just made that were some, can I just kind of, okay. Um, oh, wait, let me have one. Just, yeah. <laughs> um, this is just a list. I mostly made this. This is mostly what's on my bookshelf. <laughs> um, that's, and they're all, I think they're all essay, memoir, book-length, nonfiction of some kind. But there, there are two, uh, two crafts books I put on top that might be interesting for you to look at if you, are, if you want to kind of practice writing about ecology. One of them is um, Robin Hemley. Was he your professor? So Jesse's professor, Robin Hemley, has a, a book called A Field Guide for Immersion Writing. And we'll talk about immersion writing in a, in a minute here. And this book on here that's the second craft book I listed is not something, it's, a, it's kind of a strange book called The Law's Guide to Nature Writing and Journal, Nature Drawing and Journaling. Most of it, about two-thirds of the book, is how to draw flowers and birds. But in the other third is how to uh, keep a nature journal um, and he just gives suggestions for what to, how to deepen your observations, uh, what kind of questions you might ask while you're observing. And it's pretty good. I mean, I only use the first third of it. I don't really draw birds. But if you want to, it's good. It's a pretty big book. It uh, talks about watercolors and pastels. And I just I ignore that section, but I wanted to let you know that it's in there. <laughs> um, uh, I don't think we need to go totally through the list, but I want to point a couple out to you that a lot of these authors that I list here have other books. These just happen to be the ones that I was looking at on my shelf at this time, but a lot of them have other books, like Rick Bass has a lot of books that are ecological. So does Edward Abbey. Wendell Berry has like 30 books of poetry, nonfiction, and fiction that are all, you could all consider them ecological writing. Um, Edwidge Dandycat is not somebody, I think, who usually gets called ecological writer. Oh, cool. Well, if you don't know, do any, do any of you know Edwidge Dandycat's writing? She's awesome. Yeah, so, uh, and she writes mostly fiction, but this book I have on here, Create Dangerously, is nonfiction. It's essays. Um, 
And uh, she writes, she's from Haiti, and she writes about Haiti a lot. And there are uh, a couple essays. Did you, did you read this book? Sure. This, there are a couple of those um, post-earthquake essays yeah. that are really beautiful, uh, well, and horrible. But she's a wonderful, really wonderful writer. Um, and her first, her first book that was called Crick Crack, have you read this? That's short stories, but a lot of them, they're all very rooted in, a lot of the stories are very rooted in Haiti. And um, the one of them, um, uh, it's someone on a boat kind of writing letters uh, back to someone in Haiti, kind of back and forth. I mean, and it's, uh, if you want to talk about people interacting with their environments, the people on a little boat where everyone's kind of dying one by one is, do you all know this story? Or it sounds really uplifting, right? <laughs> Um, it's, but it's, it's uh, again, thinking about people interacting with their environment, right? People being on a sinking boat on the ocean is kind of horrible. As they try to escape, As they try to escape yeah, people throwing their babies overboard. Um, um, Uh-oh, my hair is caught on this thing, Jesse. Uh, so, again, I don't, I, don't, I, don't need to, I don't think I need to go through all of it because you will. A book that just came out recently that's on the, that's on the back, J. Drew Lanham's book, The Home Place, any of you read this book before or heard of it? It just came out. I haven't read it yet, but it's getting kind of a lot of attention as far as nature writing goes. He's, um, I think he works at Clemson. He's, I don't think he's a uh, teaches in writing. He teaches in something like geography, but um, it's a, I believe it's kind of a memoir about being um, an African American man who <coughs> is a bird watcher, um, which is something like it's like an anomaly. So it's a it's. I think it's it's gotten a lot of good reviews, and also um, H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald. Have you all read that or seen it or? Okay, it's uh, did you did you, you enjoy it? Yeah, it's um. And I've read articles about her. About the. Uh, it's kind of a new. It won a lot of awards, so you might want to check that. It's a little bit heavy though. I I think like if you um, it's a, uh, a lot of it's about her father dying, and there's it's um. I had to put it down sometimes. I was like, oh, Helen. <laughs> yes, yeah. Mixed in, yeah. But it's a good, it's a good one. All right, I could talk about this all day. I also put, um, I'll just, I won't talk about it anymore. Okay. So going back, going back to this. <laughs> so, so this, um, so writing about ecology often includes, you probably know this already, but I wanted to bullet point them. Connecting your pers personal experience to scientific or ecological truth, right? This is uh, often a characteristic of a lot of this writing about ecology, no matter the genre or whatever. Connecting your ex a personal experience to an ecological truth, um, which shouldn't be ecological scientific truth. Just a side note: shouldn't be like controversial, like what's like science. Things should be science, right? But um, you know, uh, uh, recently, I guess, maybe it's not just recently, maybe it's been throughout time, science gets drawn into politics a lot, right? And we see it with climate change, which virtually no scientists really deny climate change, but somehow it's like been drawn into our politics as being something that people don't believe. And I have a friend who teaches um, biology at WVU who says, you know, if carbon dioxide were pink, everyone would believe climate change because we would see it. Um, uh, anyway, uh, then connecting personal experience to this every human experience, which is something that you know you probably do throughout your writing, right? Connecting your experience to this every person experience, and that's um, you know important in ecological writing, and we'll 
look at something in a second. And then there's usually uh, some kind, not always, but usually there's some kind of call for action or understanding in ecological writing. And sometimes people don't, maybe don't like all nature writing or ecological writing because they feel like they're being preached to or you're a bad human, here's what you need to do. So that, that's kind of something, I guess, to think about as you're writing about nature or ecological topics. Um, how to get your point across how to, without being, let me tell you how to live, recycle, or whatever. You know, you don't want to, <laughs> you know, um, you don't want to come off as that, like, <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't want to, and you also don't want to, also a criticism of um, nature writing is sometimes that it's very quiet, you know, it's very contemplative, it's very, like, reverent. But it doesn't have to be those things. You don't have to be preachy or reverent or whatever. You can still write about ecology. That's kind of your challenge, I guess, is to work against those things. Um, so let me, actually not yet. Uh, this is just a really funny little comic that my, my friend, I have a friend who writes, does comics <laughs> in addition to writing. This is David Gessner, who's on your list I just gave you. David Gessner writes a lot about ecology. A lot of, he's got probably seven or eight books that would all count as nature writing. This is his little nature writing by the numbers, if you can see this. You know, find something, contemplate it, express awe, quote Thoreau, describe threats, <laughs> and hopefully. So it's funny, but mm, yeah, kind of. <laughs> so a word about the facts in, in, uh, in this kind of writing. So. Uh, you have a responsibility to get your facts straight, right, to your to your reader and to your subject. Um, I think even if you're writing again, even if it's not nonfiction, even if it's fiction or poetry, if you're writing about your, I feel like it's your responsibility to get the nature right, no matter what your genre is that you're writing. Um, you know, in a lot of nonfiction that you, you know, if you read some nonfiction, you might think, um, you know. Uh, there's a lot of dis a lot of discussions if you've had nonfiction classes about like what is the truth, you know, whose truth is this? Is there emotional truth? You know, does it matter if your kindergarten kindergarten teacher's dress was green or blue? There's a lot of this kind of discussions you could have in nonfiction. But I feel like those are all good discussions to have. But if you're writing about nature, like there's not in my mind there's not there's not really wiggle room. <laughs> like there are the facts and you need to get them straight. Um, how you feel about the flower is totally, that's your truth, right? But, but the flower is the flower. I sound kind of mean or something, but, but I mean, if the flower is bee balm and you call it a dandelion, like, you're just wrong. And there's not, <laughs> like, your truth, yeah, it's not, you know, my truth tells me it's the dandelion. Well, like, no, your truth is bullshit. So it's like, you can't. <laughs> so the truth is the truth with these, a lot of this. Uh, which is kind of kind of a relief sometimes if you're a nonfiction writer, you know, when you're like, "Whew, I know I gotta get, I know which facts are the facts." <laughs> um, so another way to think of it is, you know, you're the voice of your subject. It's kind of a scary responsibility. Um, Karen's wonderful seminar about vulnerability yesterday. Um, if you think about speaking for something that doesn't have a voice, I mean, that's a vulnerable. I mean, th that, that thing is vulnerable, very vulnerable, that you're speaking about, right? And you kind of owe it to your subject to speak about it truthfully and, you know, um, the best way you know how, right? I mean, if you're writing a book about, like, a cerulean warbler, like someone did, um, 
that cerulean warbler isn't going to write a book, right? It's not going to do it. If they're all going to die from, you know, they're all, their habitat's all going to you know, get wrecked by mountaintop removal coal mining and by deforestation, they're not going to tell us. They're not going to write a book about them, right? So it's, you know, our, you're the voice of that subject when you're writing about it. Um, and also, you should think about it. Sometimes people say, or um, my students anyway have said in the past, well, who cares about what I'm writing about? Like, who cares about this? And I think if, if you imagine your audience as curious and engaged already, I think that's a good way to approach, approach writing about a, a nature subject. I mean, you want to make it interesting, but um, if you see a book about a hawk, you're probably, maybe I'm not giving people much credit, you're probably not going to pick it up if you don't already like hawks, right? So you probably are going to have an audience who's kind of interested already, which I guess is true for any writing. You're not going to buy a book of poetry if you don't like poetry, probably, right? Uh, maybe you will, but um, but uh, you want to. I get. I guess I want. I try to make vultures really interesting in my vulture book, and I hope that I have done it. But but who's going to pick up a book about vultures if you're not already at least curious? So you've already you already have a, a, a hook, but the curiosity might already exist, and then you've got to grow that curiosity into you know love, right? And again, thinking about vulnerability. Uh, some of this writing about science or writing about ecology can seem it's outside of me, it's impersonal, so I'm not that vulnerable. You know, I'm writing about science. However, whenever you love something, you're vulnerable, right? I mean, as soon as you love something, then you're like, no, you're done. <laughs> then you're vulnerable. So, uh, and a lot of these subjects, when you start looking at these ecological subjects and you start researching them, you're like, <laughs> this is we've done a really poor job of keeping this keeping this stuff in good shape. So it can get a little depressing if you're once you let yourself love something that you're writing about. Um, you know, you become vulnerable and then you become like you know the pers the person who everyone is like, "Oh good, Katie's coming over. She's not going to use my, you know, paper nap my paper napkins or whatever, you know." <laughs> um anyway, is your hand up over there? Oh, no. oh okay. Okay, you're looking for the spider. <laughs> you mentioned your, the work you're doing, and if now's not a good time. Now's always a good time to talk about my work. <laughs> the vulture work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us sort of about the genesis of that just quickly and, and what exactly oh. you're doing? Oh, well, vultures, yeah, so vultures are nature's perfect creature. You know, turkey vultures especially. They're like turkey vultures don't kill anything. They only eat dead stuff. Um, they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't bother anybody. Um, they just. They just fly around and wait for things to die. You know, and then they clean it up, and they do a really good job cleaning up the dead stuff. I mean, and they eat the whole entire. Sometimes they might leave big bones, but like they eat the whole, the guts, the eyeballs, the fur, small bones, and they neutralize it. And if something, dies of a disease, cattle. You know, if a, if a cow dies from anthrax, they can eat the anthrax, and it neutralizes it. Their system neutralizes it. So when they go to the bathroom, it's it's like neutral. It's really cool. So I just love them. Written a little bit on sky burials. Yes, sky burials. That's that's in my book. That's in my book. Yeah, sky burials are. Okay, cool. Well, March, March. Yeah. Oh, thanks. 
Yeah, different bird. So that 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 book that Julia, thank you, Julia. I didn't tell her to do that either. Um, uh, so this book I, I wrote about. That's the cerulean warbler up there. That um, if you're a West Virginian, um, and I know lots of you are. So we have more breeding cerulean warblers than any other state. We have 36% of the global breeding cerulean warbler population, and they're the fastest declining songbird in North America. So we, our state bird is what, like the cardinal, which is good too. Are you writing about cardinals and something? Cardinals are good too, our state bird, but cerulean warbler, you know. I started writing that book because I didn't like mountaintop removal coal mining, and I went to a presentation while I was in graduate school uh, at an Audubon meeting, um, from someone from the wildlife department who was uh, giving a presentation about the effect of mountaintop removal on the cerulean warbler. And I listened to it and I thought, oh, someone should write a book about that. And then um, it didn't, then I kind of just didn't do it. I said, didn't think it would be me. And then a couple, several years later, they came up again to me for, uh, I had moved out of West Virginia and was living in Blacksburg teaching at Virginia Tech. And I had heard that the cerulean warbler had been denied threatened status under the Endangered Species Act. And I was like, what? They have declined by 3% a year every year since 1966. So their population is like 70% smaller now. So um, I didn't know what I was doing because when I was in grad school, um, I didn't write anything. I didn't do any interviews. I didn't do any research. I wrote um, mostly you know, essays that were about ideas that might have been interesting. Um, and I wrote, you know, things about my childhood or uh, whatever that I think that they were all fine, but they didn't really prepare me to write research, interview, travel. Um, and when I originally wrote it, I had lots of me in there, lots of Katie doing things, lots of Katie, like, thinking about stuff, lots of Katie wandering around and falling on a trail, you know. Um, and then, then I got this agent, and he was like, yeah, I just got to get rid of this stuff. And I was like, but that's, that's the me. Um, so we kind of, we are compromised, and there's some of me in there. Uh, speaking about vulnerability, and then I'll move on and not talk about me anymore. Um, I was just talking about loving your subject, and you're making yourself vulnerable that way, and loving your subject when you write about it. But uh, when you're doing your ecological writing, writing about your science and your nature, you're still doing, you are, you are still a person doing it. Um, meaning like you're still talking, you're still sitting at a library, you're still driving a car somewhere thinking. Um, and I think it's okay for you to put that you in there, you doing the research. I find that really interesting to read about someone doing the research. Um, and you have experiences happening to you that are affecting your research while you're doing it that have nothing to do with the research. Um, I almost didn't write this book at all because right when I started the project, the, our shooting happened at Virginia Tech. And, and I had a wonderful 18-year-old student who was killed. And I almost, I was like, yeah, I'm just not going to go anywhere. I was going to sit in my house and cry, right? For, <laughs> and I had interviews and stuff and trips scheduled. That shooting happened in April. And I had trips scheduled for the end of April, like for two or three weeks later. And uh, you know, that I almost didn't do any of it. And then um, when I, my first kind of draft of the book had them, it almost became about the shooting because everything I was doing was like reminding me of things. And, um, you know, the survivor's guilt type stuff was just like kind of overwhelming. And uh, then I ended up backing off a lot of that. Some of that is in the book, but not, not as much as there was. So 
Uh, and that adds, I mean, you're a living person doing the research, and I think that adds a layer to your work. I hope that wasn't too depressing. Um, I think it helps people too, reader, readers, because especially in the science-resistant atmosphere that America, mm -hmm. Americans tend to have, that realizing a person is part of this. It's not just mm -hmm. facts that float out that somehow fell from the sky and we like it right. and we, we don't. I think that's an, an aspect of that involvement. Yeah, I think you know, and I and I you know I started making connections, which I think is something that we all writing is making connections, right? In a lot of ways, um, and I think that uh, I started to make some connections between um, you know this you know you know students being at class early in the morning, you know, ready to learn, and like birds returning from migration, and uh, trying to find a place to 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 you know nest and live, and you know getting it cut short, just you know it, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 I can not on the table right now. It'll be at the reading tonight and then back on the table. Okay. And the Vulture book will be around March. March so. It's available for pre order right now. <laughs> uh, so, um, oh, yes, go ahead. I feel like with Appalachian writing, this is very important because it's very difficult to separate the people from the landscape, in my opinion. And, and what you were talking about with, with, with being vulnerable and, and learning how to, how do you write the destruction of something without, what, what are the tips and guides for not sinking into that anger of what's happening? <laughs> or well, is that the process, just putting it all in there and then taking it out? Or? I think it depends how you want to tell the story. I mean, if you want to tell the story and you want it to be like, I'm just going to present what's going on here and I'm going to try to keep myself out of it and let people... You know, that's one way to tell a story, but if you want to be like, I'm real mad, and I'm going to tell you my story about how I'm really mad, I think it depends on how you want to tell the story and who you are. Um, yeah, what story you're telling. Um, it can be sometimes tough to write rage, for me anyway. I don't know. I'm, I'm such a rageful person. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't want to, like, I, I get, it's tough to write rage. Yeah, I just kind of, um, I don't want to make people uncomfortable. And sometimes getting really mad is like you're making people uncomfortable. And I sometimes shy away from that. So uh, I maybe I just tell that story in a way that is less angry and I try to be funny because that's my go-to. <laughs> um, so let me, let me move on here or we'll never get there. So some building blocks. This is sort of more um, uh, nuts and boltsy kind of stuff. So they're looking at a, I don't know if you can tell, but this is a big leaf. Do you know what leaf miners are? Isn't that an awesome, the leaf miners are these little ant, little animals, little bugs, little insects, I guess, that go inside leaves and eat them. From the, and, they, and they make little trails. If you see leaves with like little, like kind of whitish looking pats on them, they're probably leaf miners. So they're looking, they're tracing the trail of a leaf miner. Um, so some of the, some building blocks of this kind of writing. Close observation uh, and examination is, is super important. Um, looking really closely at something small, right? And it sounds like this should be obvious, but it's kind of amazing how rarely we closely observe a, a thing and write about it, a small thing. Um, and then after, you know, moving from your observations to kind of investi more investigating and more interrogating your subject, asking questions like, why, does a leaf, why doesn't a leaf miner just go make a straight line? 
Why does a leaf miner go blah, 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 blah? Like, is that a design the leaf miner has in mind? Does the leaf miner know what the leaf looks like? I mean, these are, you can investigate this stuff, ask your questions about your observations. And you can do, obviously, research. A lot of this kind of writing has research. Um, immersion is like my favorite thing to do, to like just go somewhere and see what happens, right? Is kind of, uh, I think, really important. Um, interviews, which I'll talk more about in a few minutes. I gotta start talking fast. Uh, interviews are also, like, you can't, I don't wanna, I never did interviews before I wrote my Cerulean Warbler book, and I didn't know how to do it. So what I did is I took, I had a little voice recorder. Now it was before my phone did it, but I had a little digital voice recorder that I would just go out in the field with biologists who were studying the birds, and I would just turn it on, and it would just record our whole conversation. It took me a long time to go through that stuff, but I was able to pick out my interview pieces just from having a regular conversation instead of having a formal sit-down interview. And I'll talk more about interviews in a minute. I'm going to get ahead of myself. Um, and then traditional research, like you know, books and stuff. That's important, too. <laughs> uh, what's funny is you'll find that some of your subjects, like cerulean warblers, for example, um, there's not a whole lot of research about them. There, there's not a whole lot of research about some of these subjects that you might be interested in. There might not be anything in books. There might be all scholarly articles. Um, or you, know, you might have to find people doing the research and go and talk to them. Um, we'll talk about that in another minute, but I want to pause and look at your packet for one second. You all, you'll have this packet with things written all over it. Look at uh, the, middle, the middle chapter from the, the excerpt from The Forest Unseen, the mosquito one. Um, the, have any of you read The Forest Unseen before? It's the person who wrote it is not actually a, I mean, he's a writer, obviously, wrote it. And I think this won the National Book Award, so it probably counts as being a writer now. <laughs> but he's, um, I think he teaches in a biology department at, uh, um, uh, oh no, the University of the South? Is that the one in Suwannee, Tennessee? I think I'm supposed to, I have a friend who, who uh, is from Georgia, and he said I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to say, the University of the South. <laughs> you, know, you can't just say University of the South. Anyway, um, I think he's a professor there. So what he did, he talks about the, the mandala in here a little bit. And I don't know if you know what that, do you know what that is? Mandala, that, the thing the monks do with the sand, right? And they make beautiful. And they're about, uh, I think about three feet across is how he's, how, what he's using as his measurement. And he went to the forest in Tennessee and he put down, uh, an imagine, I don't know if it's a, a real at first and then kind of imaginary, a circle the size of a mandala, and he went there and observed it, how it changed over the course of a year. So he looked at this little three-foot circle and observed it, which sounds really boring, right? No. <laughs> that would be wrong. No, just kidding. But, but he comes up with things like this, so he goes from his observations to researching, Right, and you know, sometimes he, in putting more of his, per, some of it's a little more personal than this section, but uh, can someone who's who's not me maybe want to read it like this first, maybe this first two paragraphs of this? Good. Hungry ladies dance in the air, swoop at my arms and face, then land and probe. They have flown upwind, excited by my smelly mammalian promise. <laughs> No doubt the nakedness of my skin further stimulates them. No dense mat of hair to obscure their dinner table. What an easy meal. 
One of the mosquitoes lands on the back of my hand and I let her probe my skin. She is mousy brown, just a little furry, with scallop patterns along her abdomen. Slender curved legs hold her body parallel to my skin. A needle juts from under her head. She slowly moves this lance across my skin, seeming to test for a suitable spot. She stops, holds steady, then I feel a burn as her head drops between her forelegs and the needle slides in. The sting continues as she penetrates deeper, sliding in several millimeters. The sheath that held the needle has bent back between her legs, leaving a tiny length of thin tube exposed between her head and my skin. The needle looks like a single shaft, but it is a bundle of several tools. Two sharp stylets help cut into the skin, making way for salivary tubes and a straw-like food canal. The salivary tubes ooze chemicals that prevent blood from clotting. These same chemicals cause the allergic reaction that we call mosquito bite. Thank you. I know some of you are going, oh. Does that make you want to itch? And like, are you all sitting there going like, stop, just don't let it do that. Have you ever let that happen and watched like the mosquito like fill up with blood? Yes. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of, did you let him go or do you usually kill them after that? <laughs> kill them. But I love that he delays that it's a mosquito bite yes. until yep. the very end of the page. Yeah, he's, and he's, and it's just like, uh, yeah, very close observation, right, of this happening. And he probably didn't know, he may not have known all this stuff about the mosquito while it was happening, right? He probably did this research, observed this happening, took notes, did, some, did the research, and then incorporated it into the experience. And we all know this experience, right? This is one of those every human experiences, you know, getting, getting stung, you know, by a mosquito. And... Uh, Later in this, so he's kind of zooming in, right? He's zooming way in. I mean, a mosquito is very small. But then later in this piece, he kind of, the next page, he kind of zooms out, and he starts talking on page 111. He starts talking about um, the mosquito may fly a mile or more from, you know, and he talks about what the mosquito does after she leaves with this blood, right? And then he gets into, then he pulls back further and talks about, you know, West Nile virus, avian malaria. And then... Um, then if you keep going in here, he's continuing to zoom out. And then we get, what do we learn about, about the University of the South in here? Did you read that far? Yeah. Yes, that's why he has this piece of land to look at, right? The mandala has, this is on page 113. Um, malaria is seemingly irrelevant to my modern experience in the mandala. But this is an illusion. The mandala has been spared the chainsaw because it lies in an area set aside by the University of the South. This university brought me here also. What brought the university to this hillside? Malaria, among other things. Like many of the older universities in the east, the school is located on a plateau away from the swamps that breed malaria and yellow fever. The cool temperatures and relative freedom of the Tennessee hills from mosquitoes made them an ideal place to send the offspring of the southern gentry. So it's, a, it's you know, again, zooming in close and then zooming back and incorporating some history of the, history of the place, right? Um, history of the people who would have been there, you know, some of the people. The reason that that space exists, it's all, it's all and it starts with this close observation of this tiny mosquito then affecting all these rippling out to all these bigger, bigger experiences. 
kind of cool, right? So, all right. <laughs> um, and then he continues, uh, just he talks again more about the, the blood and the atoms and the bird and the eggshell and the snail, you know, and it, and it connects his blood then to, it's, it sounds like he's talking about like all of the, all of the world, right? And uh, you've, you've, and sometimes when you start thinking about ecology, you get, you get there. You're like, we are all everyone, you know, or mm. everyone is, you know, the, everyone is the same, sort of, you know what I mean? We're all stardust, right? Were you? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, you know, and you hold, you hold dust, right? And it's, it's, it's dead people, right? And isn't there, I'm not going to get this quote right. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, it, like if you every time you breathe, you're breathing in molecules that, like everyone out, everyone throughout history has breathed. Does anyone know this better? What the actual quote is? I'm, you know, I'll find it. Caesar's Caesar. It's like yeah. Caesar's last breath. Yeah. Right. So, anyway. Okay. Um, if you read uh, something for you to read. That's on your list is that I, I should mention is um, Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac. You've all read this, right? Yes. I'm giving you the disapproving teacher look. So Aldo Leopold's A Sand County Almanac, I think you have to read it. Like, it's a must read. Um, uh, a Sand County Almanac, Aldo Leopold. It's a, I think it was written in maybe the 40s, 1940s, by um, Aldo Leopold was a... And actually, Scott, you've read him, right? Okay. He was a trained forester. Yeah. But he basically was one of the fathers of wildlife management. Yes. Yeah, and one of his jobs was to go shoot wolves. Yes. Yep. He went on the, the uh, Kaibab Plateau and shot a wolf, and he has this essay called Thinking Like a Mountain. Thinking Like a Mountain. You, yeah, you got to read that. Yeah. Yeah. You have to read Thinking Like a Mountain if you haven't. It's, it's a, one of the chapters in a Sand County Almanac. One of his, one of his my favorite chapters is called Odyssey. And he has, um, he follows a, I think that it's, it's probably a um, calcium, uh, calcium, um, what do you call the little things, atoms, <laughs> a calcium atom. I'm like, you know, they're like this big. He follows a, <laughs> he follows a calcium atom, like through, um, from when it came out of a rock and got pulled up by roots and then was eaten by, you know, a field mouse that was eaten by an owl that was eaten by, you know, that died, that was, that then a, you know, a fox took the feather, like it was just, it's this long, um, it's really, really cool. And when my students read it at first, usually they're like, I don't know what's going on, this is really weird. <laughs> you know, what's an atom, you know, and, uh, uh, but it's, uh, it's, then you, when you learn, oh, I see what's going on, this is nutrient cycling, right? This is like, we are all, and then we get to that point where like, yeah, we're all we're all dirt. We're all stardust, you know. Um, we're all everyone, uh, and then everyone's like, "Keith Allen's crazy." <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, but um, getting getting back to my little PowerPoint here. So immersion um, is my favorite my favorite thing to do is to just get yourself in something, and uh, keep a field notebook wherever you go, wherever you're, you know immersing yourself, whether it's nature or whether it's travel or whatever, keeping your field notebook is like, it sounds very basic, but experience through your senses and then write it down. I mean, that's like the, again, it sounds very, very basic, like, you know, English 101 or something, but like, 
experience through your senses and then write it down because you're not going to remember, right? You might not remember. You might think, I have thought, I've been in beautiful places before and I've thought, I'm never going to forget this incredible moment. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, what? Is that my, is that a Facebook alert? You know, so, well, take your field notebook and write yourself down, like write down what you're, what is happening and don't, um, this is, again, something you've heard all the time in creative writing, but don't forget about your other senses besides sight and hearing. I mean, don't forget about what things feel like, you know, what they smell like, and, and uh, you know, get in the creek, right? That's um, touch stuff. Uh, look, at, look really closely at little things in the creek. This get in the creek is kind of my well, metaphor. Like, Get in there. When you're out there experiencing stuff, like touch things. Pick up the crayfish. You know, I mean, I know that there that there's this uh, don't touch sort of thing that happens sometimes when you're visiting beautiful nature areas, like take only photographs, leave only footprints kind of thing. And I tend to like ignore that and just go in the creek. So, but uh, you shouldn't ignore the rules. But on the other hand, I mean, <laughs> no, <laughs> like. There's touching and taste, touching and taking are different, right? Yep. And I'm not, I mean, nothing, I'm not, you know, touching an endangered whatever, right? I don't think. Who knows what that guy is? Not me. I don't know his name. I should have learned it. But, you know, <laughs> flipping over rocks and looking at, even if you don't think you're going to write about what's in the creek, it's still a really good exercise to get out and do it and go in there. Liter I mean, in the metaphoric creek of experiencing whatever, but the literal creek. Flip over rocks and look at all that stuff in there. I mean, it's crazy what lives in these little creeks in West Virginia that we have all over the place that, that people who, who like mountaintop removal mining make fun of ephemeral streams and how we want to protect ephemeral streams in West Virginia. And people, you know, laugh at that. Like, there's a lot of stuff in there. I mean, these little streams that only run part of the year. Um, little stuff like that guy. Uh, I think that we have, I read somewhere that we have more crayfish species in West Virginia than anywhere. Did you, did you hear this recently? That's cool. So get in the creek, look at this stuff, immerse yourself. Um, document everything, right? Take more notes than you think you're going to need because you're not going to know what's important until you're done, right? Or you might not know what's, import, what's important until you finish. Um, this, you don't know if you can really see it, but that's... Um, he drew a picture of a flower and wrote little arrows and, and made little notes. And it's, it's bee balm, which is like my favorite. Um, so, you know, even if you don't think what you're experiencing or writing down is important, but it might be. So write it down. I mean, you're, I have never in my life regretted writing something down. Like, have any of you been like, darn, I shouldn't have written that down? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't happen, right? I mean, I've never regretted writing something down, even if I haven't used it. Um, so... Here's another one, another one of my most beautiful flowers. So this is a little, kind of a little exercise that I stole from that um, Law's Guide to Nature Drawing and Journaling. I think this is, I love this. To deepen observations, try these, these three things. Try to write, I notice, I wonder, and it reminds me of. And if you go out and look at a flower and write this, I notice, I wonder, it reminds me of, you will almost have an essay after doing that. I mean, you'll start thinking, wow. I wonder what this is. You know, I noticed this. What is that doing? Oh, that reminds me of, 
that time when someone pushed me down the stairs, whatever. I mean, things remind you of all, I didn't think I was going to go there. You know, but you can get reminded. I mean, our brain is amazing. You know, we get reminded of all kinds of stuff. Little smells might remind, have triggers memories that you don't even really know are in there. Um, so I was going to do a little, let's do, mm, let's do a very, very fast writing exercise that's maybe only like five minutes. Um, I have 10, 10, 15, right? Okay, maybe only five minutes or so. So if you know the name of this flower, don't say it. Don't say it because the common name is, it's named after something that it reminded someone of. Um, so don't say it if you know it. It's native West Virginia wildflower. So just look at that thing and just, just do this for five minutes. I notice, I wonder, and it reminds me of. Using this, using this uh, beautiful flower whose name I'll tell you in five minutes. It's a really weird flower. I'll stop talking. <laughs> Okay, I know you haven't had very long, but just try to finish up whatever you're, whatever you're writing. Um, so what do you notice about this thing? What are some of the things you wrote that you noticed? Polka dots. Polka dots. Yeah, look at those polka dots. I wonder what those are for. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what, 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 else, what else do you notice? So it reminds you of a of a hood rather than a cup or a bowl. Yeah, so you're already going to the what it reminds you of. Yeah. What else what else do you notice or wonder or are reminded of? Looks like a chandelier. Like a chandelier. Yeah, look at that. It does look like a chandelier with a chandelier with like purplish lights. I want that. You want that flower? No, I want that 
Oh, the light. <laughs> what? Oh. Oh, no, the way that the, the purple, those are stamens, right? At the end of the... It's, I think so. Okay. They remind me, if you look at the way they're attached to the main body of the flower, they look almost like people around a maypole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. Merry-go-round. Merry-go-round, people around a maypole. I like it. And then when you're writing your nature essays, you're like on the merry-go-round where whatever. You know, I mean, blood speckled. It does look like blood splatter speckles. That's a little bit of a different way to look at a beautiful flower. <laughs> Yeah, on the yellow, it's like a banana that's yes. almost about to, to be inedible because it's so soft, but yes. not quite at that point yet. Yes, that, that, yeah, you're right. You like this ecological writing, don't you? It's, it's a lot of fun. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Anything else that you noticed or were reminded of? It's a lady picking up her skirts to twirl around on her six legs. <laughs> 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 nice. I see it. Yes, I see it. It does look a little. No, it does look a little alien. It's like like an alien's mouth is opening and it has its like yeah yeah it does a little bit yes I can see that I can see it. It does just like the inverse sort of alien egg when it opens up from the movie you know. It yes yeah. So this is all good. So listen to how different your stuff was right. I mean, we've got aliens, we've got like a w woman with six legs twirling a skirt, maypole, blood splatter, banana, black mold, like moldy. So, uh, and then the, then the hood thing, the hood cup thing. So does anyone know what this is called, the common name for this? It's a lily. It's a lily. It's slightly, it's, it's called, I don't know if it's, it's slightly inappropriate maybe. It's the Turk's cap lily. Because um, someone, I don't know what a Turk's cap looks like, but apparently sort of like this. So someone at some point named the, gave the common name of this the Turk's cap lily. So someone else thought it was a cap, looked like a cap. Um, it's also called a swamp lily sometimes. Um, it's a, it's, so then when you, after you got your observations, if you wanted to write more about this, you would do some research and you would learn that it's native to, native to Appalachia, um, threatened in some parts of the region, common in some other parts. Um, the roots are edible, apparently. I have not eaten one, but the, the roots, I guess, are edible of the Turk's cap lily. I don't. I, I mean, I maybe maybe just Google that to make sure before you do it. But <laughs> but uh, what I've read is that I've heard it's edible, um, and it was important to Native Americans in the region as a as a food. Yeah. Yes. There are there are a couple leaf snap. One of them. Yeah, there are a couple that do that. Leaf snap. Cynthia says is one of them. App. And there's a bird app called the Merlin Merlin Bird ID app that you could that you could narrow down what kind of bird you're seeing. And you have to photograph the bird. The bird you don't have to photograph. The bird you don't. Of the 30 birds. It's from Cornell. Oh, 
Cornell. I think Cornell Bird ID would you, would get you there. Yeah, the it's called Merlin. Yeah, it's the same thing. Merlin by the Cornell Ornithology folks. Yeah. It's really good. I've I've ID'd, I've ID'd almost every bird. And you can oh, just download that. Great. There's also an app where you can record the bird and it tells you what it is. Yeah, there's all kinds of good apps for identifying nature things. So, I think leaf snap. All right, so, so, okay. There's lots of, so this is exciting. Let's move on. <laughs> so, that's, that's our friend bee balm again there, which was another, another native wildflower that you could make tea out of it, apparently, um, that I've never done. So, maybe, again, before you try, just Google it to make sure. But I've heard you can make good tea out of it. Um, so moving from your observations then to these questions, this is also something from this laws guide that I've just kind of, not stealing totally, but um, the, being intentionally curious is, can be important. Like, what is that thing? I'm curious about that. I have, don't know what that is. You know, I mean, being intentionally <laughs> curious can help your writing. Looking for patterns, you know, and then, you know, using, using the who, what, when, where, why, and how, and like writing these questions down, even if you don't know the answers, when you're observing something closely, writing down questions that you might want to answer later. And that can kind of move you from just observation to the research, to what it is. You know, how does it work? Uh, and then seek answers to those questions. Sorry if I'm talking a little bit fast, but I want to make sure I get through all this stuff. So you know this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you, gotta, you, know, you can do traditional research first if you want. I usually just, I usually, <laughs> like a bad student, and I'm like, what does Wikipedia say about the Turks Cap Lily? So, you know, go, go to the internet, Google stuff. Use Google Scholar if you, if you want to find scholarly. Have you done this before? Google Scholar can be pretty great to at least point you to different scholarly publications. Um, you know, you might find popular publications that might have articles like Shiny Magazines, and then there might be books. But something really important, it can be really dense if you're trying to read a scientific paper about the Turks cap lily. Like you might read it and be like, wow, this is another language. I don't know what's going on. But if you find the names of the authors of these studies, um, you can usually find their email addresses pretty easily. And you can usually send them an email and say, I'm writing about the Turks cap lily. Can, you, can I talk to you sometime about your research? And if someone asks you about your work, like, what do you usually do? You're like, oh, well, let me tell you, you know. Yeah, so often, I mean, these people probably don't get asked all that often about their research on the Turks cap lily. So contacting these people is, is, is okay. And it's how, like, everyone that I've interviewed ever for both of my books, I just got by, like, sending them emails if I didn't know them already, um, st stalking them a little, you know. And then they often will have grad students. And uh, if you're anything in the sciences, usually the professor often is the person who <laughs> like sits in the office and looks for money. And then the grad students go out and do the research, right? So often you could tag along with grad students who are doing the research. And um, get, it can be kind of fun. Um, interviews. So I think I love interviewing. And you might think interviewing is scary. Talking to someone, asking them questions can be scary, but this is, um, I think that their potential importance cannot be overstated. Uh, you can get things translated for you in an interview, especially about science. Um, you can say, you know, explain to me, I read in your paper this. Explain to me what that means. I think it means this. Is that true? 
And they can be like, no, Katie, you're really wrong. Let me tell you what we did. And they can explain it better um, and say it in real words that you can understand. That might be, that might be quotable you know, as dialogue, right? Um, this can humanize science, too. It can put a face on the research, which is often important. You, know, you connect with the reader on a personal level then, person to person, I guess. Um, and it, they can also point you to books or articles that you might have missed. So uh, this picture is a little hard to see. This is just kind of a, a little example. Do you, could, do you know what, do you know, can you tell what that is? Mm. It's a little hard to see. It's an orange stream. Yeah, so you know what the orange streams are, right? Acid mine drainage. Acid mine drainage. This is in um, Preston County. You're from Preston, Preston County. This is in, um, uh, it's um, near the uh, uh, Army, Army um, Camp Dawson. That, yeah, kind of like between Kingwood and there's like a little road that goes kind of behind Camp Dawson. Do you know what I'm talking about? You come down the road and ah, do you know the name of that creek that's orange? No one seems to know the name of this creek that's back there that's orange. It's not Deckers. It 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 might be. I'm sure it's probably named Laurel Creek or Fishing Creek or Sinking Creek. <laughs> There's a lot of Laurel, yeah, but it's orange from acid mine drainage. So this is up here because if you uh. Inter your interviews can lead you to more opportunities, right? You can say, well, can you show me, right? Like, show me, oh, you're doing acid mine draining research. Can you show me what that looks like? Um, which can then provide potential scenes and characters around those experiences of learning about the research with a person or two that can become then a character in your <coughs> writing. Uh, like, this is... Um, this is my friend Bill, who's a biologist. So I don't know if you can tell, but he, that's what your hand looks like when you touch the water. I mean, it stains it orange. So that, that can be, I mean, so if you were going write to write about this ecological problem of acid mine drainage, I think it would be, a, this experience would enrich that writing, right? You could make Bill a character. You could talk about his little hat, you know, and, uh, and he's got a little, you know, his little beard and he's laughing and his hands are orange. Good. progression to that is actually exploring the research as a facet of whatever it is that you're actually looking at. Yes. Because in addition to how humans impact the environment, how humans are researching or trying to address these problems seems to be yeah. really important, which means that the actual characterization of this research is integral to the work. Yes, or at least totally. Or to the, I feel, the, the ethos of the, the author mm -hmm. of the work. And how the people are interacting with the problem. Right. Yeah. Which yeah, yeah. Is just as important as how people are creating the problem. Yes, how we're how we're interacting with it and what we're doing and how we're going to fix the problem. Yes, totally. Okay, now I have two minutes, so going fast. This is a um, a word on uh, uh, ethics. This is like a boring slide. I'll just I'll just um. So you obviously, if you're doing research, you got to cite everything, right? You know that. Um, what's important here, though, I think it's important to. to Note, you should make a clear distinction between what's your opinion about something and what's the fact about something. It seems to me, you can say, or in my experience. I mean, you can put little qualifiers like that, but it's, uh, it's, it's important for the reader to know, like, what is something that you've learned through your research and what's something that you just kind of think. 
Uh, so when you're doing interviews, it can get in, you can get it can get murky about how you deal with them ethically. Like, I share transcripts and drafts with everybody I interview, which is a little more. There are some people who interview people who who don't do this at all, who just interview them and then like go out in the world and hope that everything's fine. Uh, but I share everything because I want to make sure I heard people correctly, and I want to make sure I want that person I interviewed to sell that book to their whole family. So <laughs> I want to I want to make sure that they're happy with themselves in the book. Um, this sounds awful, and that's why I wrote UG. So uh, my Vulture book, a University Press of New England, made me have everybody I interviewed sign a waiver. And I'm like, come on, it's Vultures. We're not talking about like nuclear weapons or something, but. But uh, there's a, they have a standard waiver that, that they sent to me that I just sent around to all the people I interviewed and said, sorry about this, can you sign it? And they all know everyone, of course, already had read the drafts of the chapters that they appeared in. But you might, if you, you might run into something like that. Um, and there's, something, there's a whole chapter about this in that field guide to immersion writing about ethics. So telling a story... Um, is, is what you do, right? So after you do this research, you have your observations, you have your research, you've asked your questions, then you've got to figure out what to do with it. Um, I like to make maps and charts where I do like, like I write things, and I, I won't do it because it'll take time, but I write things and I draw arrows to them and write other things, and I have like three or four whiteboards in my room at home that I like draw little charts all over, and I write little things and make stars and smiley faces and hearts and stuff and I have it all connected. Uh, so it might be a good idea to try to do something like that. You don't have to have the hearts if you don't want to, but, um, but you know, you can, it helps me to visualize all my pieces, you know. Um, I would consider using scenes, you know, dialogue, uh, you know, reflection, memory, characters in your writing, even though you're writing about ecology and science. I mean, like we already talked about, using characters really is, uh, helps you see it helps you hear it. And then if obviously uh, what's really important is your unique interpretation, your analysis, your voice, you know, the writing part, your, your, the you in the, in, the sub, in the piece, whatever it is you're writing. So, um, oh yeah, so make, make connections, right, to the reader and to the world. So you have all, this, all these random Turks cap lily and acid mine drainage and your people you interviewed and, and then part of your job right, is to, make, is co to connect all of this stuff connect to the reader, connect it to you. Think about that every person experience. Um, I think that making the connections is really the, the thing that's personal to you, right? How you do it is, is you. <sighs> okay. So, I, so this is my last, uh, so that's us, right? Dust, handful of dust. So, um, that's my last slide. I didn't get to talk about the reading, but I want to um, give one minute and just tell you what I was going to say, but not even, not, not tell you everything I was going to say. So Buckeye, did you all like Buckeye? That's like one of my favorite essays ever. So if you wanted to um, go home and write a, do a writing exercise in response to that, you could, there are lots of possible writing exercises that come out of this. If any of you go on and teach writing, it's one of these really teachable essays you can use. You can write about your home, where you're from, what the place you consider home, you know, and in what ways does your home resist love? 
sort of love that in Buckeye when he talks about, you know, I come from a place that, you know, the place resists love, you know. Um, you know, and how have people, you know, changed that place that you call home um, or made an impact on it? You know, why do you, what do you love about a place that resists love? Uh, and you can also think about objects like those Buckeyes. Um, like in Karen's reading last night when she was talking about feeling for the, uh, feeling for the, the ring, right? I mean, you think about it, the Buckeyes were kind of, kind of a similar uh, an object, you know, that, that connects this person, the author, to his, to, his grand, to his father. So if you have an object like that, then that also connects to, the, to home and to nature, and every, then the hawk is the father, and we're all dust, and it's all connected, right? Um, uh, we also didn't talk about the food writing. I mostly wanted to show you that for you to look at how the author creates, uses that character. Um, Kloss, the wheat farmer, how he writes that character, I think is pretty, was pretty effective. You know, he described him as his, his looking like he had a, he flopped his hands around like somebody wearing ski gloves, right? Does he say? Um, you know, and, and he had his looks like his looked like he had a, co a clothes hanger in his in his shirt, <laughs> right, holding his shoulders up, uh, and then how he used his snippets of what he said. That's really why what I wanted you to look at in that one. So, all right, so I'm going to stop talking now. So thank you very much for listening to me. <laughs>